Have you ever read things in the Bible that cause you to just scratch your head trying to figure out what on earth is going on? Uh, the Bible has quite a few of those kinds of passages, and I, I don't believe that we need to focus on those passages so much as we just need to learn what we do understand from the Bible. If we practice that, some of these other things will fall into place, right? Well, I think that one of the statements that makes us scratch our heads occurs in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 17, which is the verse prior to the passage that we read today. So let's read that together real quick. It says um, this, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that, that is a very difficult statement. Is it, is it difficult for you? Uh, it, God's will for me to suffer, I, I don't, I don't want to suffer. I, I don't like suffering at all. And I, I pray every now and then, Lord, make me more like you, but help me not to suffer in doing it. Um, I'm not going to say if he's answered either one of those, but uh, we won't go there today. How's that? But sometimes it is God's will that we should suffer for doing right. The passage that Lachlan read today begins with what word? Begins with four. It begins with four, and that is a connector. That's a connecting word. And so what Peter does now is he begins to explain this statement because he's writing to people that are suffering, and they're thinking to themselves, I don't know if I went into this whole Christianity business if if I have to suffer for it. And and this guy's making these bizarre statements that says it's better to suffer. Nobody thinks it's better to suffer. And so then he goes on to explain what he means when he says that um, it's better to suffer. And this is, this is where we're going to explain this head-scratcher. Now, by all accounts, I do want to say this. This is a very difficult passage. As a matter of fact, all commentators say that this is the hardest passage in First Peter to understand. Secondly, many scholars believe that this is the hardest passage in the New Testament to understand and wrap our minds around that we're, that we're going to go through today. And so uh, with that in mind, I'll just give you a couple of the really difficult phrases and I'll tell you how we're going to handle this. The first one is verses 19 and 20, where it says that Christ proclaimed to the spirits in prison. All right, where did he go? Who is he speaking to? When was this? What did he say when he did that? There's all kinds of questions that come up with this. The second difficulty is in verse number 21, where he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now this seems to fly in the face of what the rest of the New Testament says. So what's going on here? I believe as we go through this passage, you are going to just be gripped by the glory of the salvation that has been given, granted to you through Jesus Christ, in turn, it, you are going to um, understand that when you do suffer, do not be disheartened because you will triumph just as Christ triumphed. Now, I'm not going to be able to explain in detail some of these things, so on that 
table right in front of the sound booth. There are two stacks of papers where I unpack the whole Christ preaching to the spirits in prison. A whole lot greater depth than I can handle in a sermon. So if you want to know more, you're not satisfied with what I say in the sermon, pick that up. It'll be some decent reading. It's about, well, anyway, you can read it. It's from the back of a piece of paper. Okay. And we probably never think about suffering too much for doing right because we dwell in the United States of America. We're, we're only, United States is only 5% of the world's population. Uh, persecution and, and danger for being a Christian is practically non-existent today in the United States. The U.S., though, is the lone exception to that rule for the most of, of the history of man. Literally for the last 6,000 years of history, if you have been a believer in Jesus Christ or a believer in the Bible, the Old Testament Scriptures, you are going to be persecuted, your life is going to be in danger, and you're not going to be a popular person. In any other time, in almost any other place, to be a part of God's covenant people is to live in danger, beginning with Nero, continuing all the way until today. Many people knew that their baptism was going to mark them out for special persecution. Now think about what uh, this means. Think about this. You're not in the United States, and so, or you are in the United States, and so many people, their evangelistic line is this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, that might work here, but that doesn't work in the Sudan. That doesn't work in Iraq and Iran. That doesn't work in China. That doesn't work in India, Indonesia, any of these other places. The vast population of the world, if you were to tell them that, they would laugh in your face because they know what happens to Christians. This means that when when Peter and the group that he was writing to, when they evangelized people, there was literally no way that they could promise any kind of earthly good. Think about that kind of evangelistic proclamation. Here's your message. Come follow Christ. You'll be persecuted here and now, but you'll have glory in heaven. That's the message that they would, they would uh, give. God loves you and have a wonderful plan for your life is not even in their vocabulary. It's a recent thing. So why would anyone become a Christian if your message is that things in this world would probably go worse for them and that their lives would be at risk? Now, it shouldn't surprise us that much of much of that Christianity is increasingly being marginalized in the United States of America, where the, the worldview is dominantly secular. They're trying to marginalize. I've, I've talked about this so many times before. If, if your goal is something that's opposite Christianity and you don't believe in an afterlife, then Christians are in your way of your happiness, and so they must be eliminated. So we understand all that, that that's what's happening in the United States. And I believe that some of us will suffer for doing right in our children and grandchildren even more so. And so what we need to do is strengthen ourselves and strengthen one another for when we do uh, have... Uh, a situation such as this happened, and Peter does it in such a wonderful way that just explains the glory of our salvation. And so let's look through these verses, verses 18 to 22, and see how Christ strengthens the believer while the believer is suffering for doing right. How does he do this? Well, verses 17 and 18, we see, number one, that Christ suffered 
For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For, there's that word, for Christ also suffered. That's, that's, that's how it's better. If Christ suffered, then we should follow suit and, and expect to suffer because that's the way it's going to be. But because we're so insulated from Christian suffering in the United States, Paul's words in Philippians 3.10 are, are really foreign. Remember what Paul said? This is another head-scratcher to me. And, and I, I pray this for other people. I have a hard time praying it for myself. You ready? Here's what it says. It says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings. That's easy for me to pray for John Nicholson that way. It's really hard for me to pray for Jared Edgecombe that way. I like the, that I may know Him the, and the power of His resurrection, but sharing in the sufferings, I don't think so. Now I know what you're saying. Okay, on my to-do list is to pray for Jared Edgecombe this week. That's okay. Don't really. <clears throat> Becoming like Him in His death. That's the end of that verse. While Peter is speaking of, of suffering that we could experience and still live, when he says that Christ suffered in First Peter, it's always, 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 you must understand this, referring to his crucifixion. It's, so when Christ suffered, it's a good thing because when we suffer, his suffering went, um, I'm sorry, his suffering allowed something else to happen. And that's, that's number two, the number two benefit. He brought us safe to God because Christ suffered, because he died on the cross, because he's rejected by God, because he, he, he uh, permitted himself to be strung up on that tree. He brought us safe to God. Look at verse number 18. And this is great. This is so awesome. Uh, I, I could preach a whole sermon on this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Let that grip your heart. The righteous one suffered for the unrighteous one. Who's the unrighteous one? That's us. What does it keep on saying? Then it says that He might bring us to God. He does that so that He can bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And so this question answers what I asked earlier. Why should anyone become a Christian if they know that the only thing that we can offer them is suffering in his li- in this life? The answer is that His death, His suffering satisfies our greatest human need. And that greatest human need is that our sins are forgiven, they're wiped away, and we get to spend eternity with God in heaven. That's the greatest human need. Our greatest human need is not to live long on the earth and to be comfortable. It's not your best life now. It's not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not His message. Peter's message is Christ died so that your biggest need is met. Your forgiveness as a result of your separation from God has been overcome and you will live forever in Christ's presence in joy and happiness rather than in hell in eternal misery and pain. To live forever in heaven with God and not suffer in hell is ten thousand times better than to have a happy, wonderful life here on earth. Do you agree with me? Oh, it's so wonderful. Be gripped by that. 
So now, here's the question. I want to dig a little bit in this verse. How does Christ accomplish this? Peter lays it out for us. Number one, Christ died for my sins. Because sin is against an eternal holy God. The Bible says that He, the just for the unjust, He died for my sins. And my sin is against the eternal holy God. And so to suffer the wrath of God infinitely is more terrifying than any suffering we'll experience here. Have you ever had pain so excruciating that it just makes you grit your teeth? Anybody had that? uh, This is Civil War history area, right? Somebody gave me a bullet right here. It's a Civil War bullet, and it's been bitten. It's got teeth marks in it. The same person showed me one that really somebody really crunched down on. Do you remember what they used to use it for? When they did surgery without any kind of anesthetics, they, they would give them a bullet, and they would bite on that bullet because the pain was so intense. And, and that, was, that was, I guess, to help ease or get their mind off of or whatever. But listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said that hell is a place where the pain is so excruciating that people gnash their teeth. In hell, there is no reprieve, no compassion, no companionship, and no hope. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth where the literal pain is so great that all you can do is gnash your teeth in pain. Jesus died the just for the unjust. He died for sins. We call this, by the way, the atonement. He died for sins. He atoned. He paid. And this is so great. I don't have to die for my sins. There is forgiveness. And this is why people would believe on Jesus even if it cost them their lives. But there's a second thing that he did. Number two, Jesus died the just for the unjust. What do I mean? I mean, he atoned for sins. He paid for sins. But the second thing that he did, he died as a substitute. The just for the unjust. Uh, Theologians love big words. And the big word for this is substitutionary atonement. You know what that means? Let me give you a real simple definition of what that means. It means, means He died for me. He died for me. Jesus Christ died the just for the unjust. I can't work for it. I can't give enough to the church. I can't suffer in purgatory enough for it. Jesus died for me. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Huh. Do you get excited thinking about that? Man, number three, Christ's death was ultimate. What do we mean by that? He died just once. His death was the final, all-sufficient payment that accomplished our forgiveness. It was all that was necessary to take away my guilt. And, and that, is, that is such a, a wonderful truth. And then the fourth thing that we see is he says that he might bring us to God. Christ's death and resurrection brings us to God. And this is the greatest comfort. Jesus triumphed over death and sin. He was made, the, the verse says what? Alive in the Spirit. Alive in the Spirit. He breached the, the infinite chasm between my unrighteousness and God's perfect righteous holiness. He breached that chasm and so that we can make our way to God. Christ brings us to God. And when we repent and believe, what a wonderful truth that is because we cannot breach that chasm. No way can we ever. 
How can we maintain hope in the midst of suffering? Because our worst enemy, death and sin, have been conquered. When we're in the midst of suffering, we have to remember that this is not ultimate suffering. What Satan likes to do, think with me for just a minute. When you suffer for doing right, when you feel like everywhere you turn, things are going wrong, what does Satan like to do in your mind? He likes to come in your ear and say, you know what, God's abandoned you. Then you do that. Yep, he's with everybody else. He's not with me. God just doesn't care about what I say, and Satan tempts us that way. And what Peter, do you think the people Peter's writing to has that temptation? I do. And he's telling them, no, God hasn't abandoned you. Christ suffered for you because God wanted you to be with him for all of eternity. What a great encouragement during suffering. So we can prepare ourselves for suffering by knowing that Christ suffered. He died on the cross for us so that he might bring us safe to God. Let me go to number three. Number three, Christ triumphed over wickedness. How does this strengthen us in suffering? Now we've reached a very controversial passage. So if you're half asleep, wake up. If you're not paying attention, pay attention. We're going to dive a little deep, not as deep as we could. Those papers back there are for that. And I want to try to explain what's going on here. Peter says in verse number 18, look at what he says. He says, Christ was what? He was made alive in the Spirit, Verse 19 says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah and the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. What on earth is he talking about? This is not in my sermon notes, by the way, but I got to mention this because it's such a fascinating detail. Did you know that Noah was the most famous biblical character in Asia Minor in, in the place where Peter wrote to. I, I don't have time to explain it. If you want to know, I'll tell you later. But it's really fascinating to know Peter's writing to people in Asia Minor and he intentionally brings up Noah. And there's a reason for that because he's so famous there. Now, there are three main views about what it means when it says Christ preached to the spirits in prison. What are those views? The first one says that Christ preached through Noah to Noah's generation. The second one says that Christ preached in Sheol, which is the realm of the dead, during the three days that his body was in the grave. And a third says that Christ proclaimed victory over evil angels imprisoned by God. There's actually a fourth one. I mentioned it in the paper. It's not as popular today. But those are the three main views. The third one is the one that um, I believe, and here's why. Everybody pay attention. Ready? We're going to walk through this real fast. In the New Testament, the word spirits never refuse, refers to human beings. It always refers to demons. Always refers to demons. Okay? Unless otherwise specified, humans are referred to as souls. As a matter of fact, if you look at the next, in verse number 21, see where it says eight persons in the uh, ESV? That word persons is suke, and it means soul, eight souls. 
Spirits is different. That's talking about demons. Secondly, these angels uh, were most likely angels mentioned in Genesis chapter 6. What happened in Genesis 6? These are the, the ones who left their normal bounds that God had given them, came into human bodies, and married human women. Okay, I don't have time to explain that now. They left their normal bounds that God had given them. Look at Second Peter two four, Jude six. If you want to look at that, don't look at it now because you'll lose what I'm about to tell you. Third, the word proclaim. See where it says Christ proclaimed. That word does not mean preach. We often think it means preach the gospel like it does in the New Testament. It doesn't. It literally means an official announcement or a public declaration, like from an official, a government official. Finally, the word prison. Prison never refers to hell in the New Testament. Okay? Never. There are all kinds of words used for hell in the New Testament. Prison's not one of them. All right, so here's that leads us to a question. You ready? If this is a proper interpretation, and um, I believe that it is, then why would Christ go proclaim triumph over a bunch of demons? Isn't that a weird thing to think? Why would, he, would you do that? It almost feels like you're going, nanny, nanny, boo, boo. Right? I never do that to anybody. I told you so. Please don't look at my wife. All right. Yeah. Um, why would Christ do that? And this is very important. Since the beginning, since the fall, Satan and his demons have been trying to thwart the plan of Christ in redemption. Whether it's Cain killing Abel, the um, flood, the Egyptian um, army against Israel, the Canaanites against Israel, the Babylonian captivity, the, the Assyrians, all the way, you ready? All the way to when Herod killed all the babies in Bethlehem and finally the plot to kill Jesus Christ. All of these things were the attempt of Satan and his demons to thwart this plan and Christ sometime after his death, went and proclaimed victory over those demons in prison by God. It may, and so what do we... Now, here's the question then. Okay, Pastor, that's great and all that you gave us a head full of knowledge, but how does it apply to me? How does it apply to me? How does that encourage me as a Christian? Have you ever thought about that? Peter's talking about all this bizarre stuff. How does it encourage me as a Christian? You ready? It encourages us because Christ, just as Christ triumphed over demons, just as Christ triumphed over hell, just as He triumphed over evil and everything else, through His suffering, by our suffering in Him, we will too triumph over all these things. There, there were times when it didn't feel like God's promise was going to come true, that there was going to be a deliverer, a Messiah. So many times in Israel's history. He came through. Nobody could stop it. If God has saved you, He will deliver you. 
And it may come through suffering. But remember, you are in Jesus Christ. So therefore, He will see you through. So Christ strengthened us in suffering because He suffered in death, which which resulted that He brought us to God. He also strengthens us because He triumphed over wickedness and evil spirits. And the fourth thing that we see is that baptism shows that Jesus is the ark of safety. So here we go with another difficult phrase. Ready? Let's read it. This is the second difficulty. But the meaning is rich. Baptism, verse 21, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, is Peter actually telling us that baptism saves us? It it can look like it on the surface, but that's not what he says. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this. What is this? This refers back to verse number 20, which is speaking of the flood. In verse 20, Peter says that Noah and his family made it through the waters of judgment safety through the ark. They were in the middle of judgment. They went untouched by that judgment. And the word corresponds. Ready? Baptism, which corresponds to it. You know what that word means? It means template or pattern. In other words, you ready? The ark, Noah and the ark, the eight people that were in the ark, they are a pattern of salvation. They are a physical picture of a spiritual reality. And who is the ark? Jesus Christ. Remember, the Bible over and over and over says, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Christ went through the judgment. He went through, he bore the wrath of God. He, he took that judgment in our place and he's our ark of salvation. Now let me point out one more thing because this is important for the understanding of, of this passage. The word baptism, I'm going to give you a little bit of history. You ready? The word baptism is a transliteration and not a translation. Do you know the difference? All right, let me explain this because now, now all of a sudden I use two words and I can tell. Some of you are already, oh, look at the sky. All right, pay attention. This is, this is, this is good. This is good. Most of your Bible translates words. Okay? If you were to translate the Greek word baptism, do you know what it would be? Immerse. That's the literal translation. But they translated the word baptizo into baptize. They they transliterated it. Now, why do you think they did that? I'm going to give it to you. Ready? And by the way, it's just a common word now, so we, we wouldn't want to change it. But the translators of the Bible were from the Church of England. They're Anglican. Did they immerse? No. And so they transliterated baptizo into baptize, and there's a new English word. But the word means to immerse. We are immersed in Jesus Christ through the judgment. Do you see? Look it up. If you don't believe me, it, the word means immerse. Anybody can look that up. The word means immerse. So he's not talking about literal water baptism here. 
Because the water baptism doesn't save you. He says so. He even makes it the point. He says, not as the removal of dirt. He's talking about the immersion into the ark of safety that went through the judgment. And you can see it when he says, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're baptized and um, in, in the Baptist tradition, it's buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Immersed in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Now, let me say this. I realize that there are people that believe differently than this. I'm not trying to anger you, and I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just trying to explain the passage. That's all I'm doing. So I'm not, I'm not pointing anybody out. It is a baptism that saves you. It's a baptism into the death and resurrection of Christ. And here's the issue. As that flood was a furious judgment of God on the earth in Genesis, it killed everybody on the face of the globe, yet eight people lived through it. They were immersed in it. They were immersed in an ark of safety. So the judgment of God came upon Jesus Christ, and the judgment that came upon Jesus Christ, and you went through that judgment in Him, but you survived, protected in the ark who is Jesus Christ, the ark of safety. And we've been buried with Christ, and we have risen with Him. We have passed from death death to life, judgment is past, this suffering that we are experiencing cannot be the condemnation of God. That has already been experienced for us by Christ. We have received that by faith. We have expressed our, our faith by baptism. It stands as a constant reminder that the worst of the suffering has been averted. Christ took it for us. We will never have to come into judgment. And this is how the, uh, this is now, there is now no condemnation. Um, we have already died in that death through Jesus Christ and been raised with Him. Therefore, the present suffering is not the wrath of God. But the loving discipline of a father who's preparing us for glory. Isn't that great? Well, let me move on. Number five, real quick. The last way that Christ prepares us for suffering, and I don't have time to get into this like I would, but Christ is at the right hand of God. Look at verse number 22. This is so awesome. Who has gone into heaven? And is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Those very forces of evil that are mentioned in verses 19 and 20, those angels that are mentioned in 2 Peter 2 4 and Jude 6 and Genesis 6, those very principalities and authorities and powers are subjected to him. And so take this one thought with you in preparation for your suffering. You ready? Take this with you. No harassing, no oppressing, no deceiving, accusing demon is ever free to do what he pleases in your life. All angels, all powers, all authorities, devils and evil spirits and demons, and even Satan himself are subject to Jesus Christ. And Jesus reigns at God's right hand and you are under him. Evil people and beings can do nothing to you without God's permission. They cannot touch you unless He lets them. And He will only let them to the degree that it's for your good and His glory. Please understand that. 
If you're here today, you walked in the auditorium thinking, God's abandoned me. God doesn't care about me. It seems like everything I do is not going my way. Dear brother and sister in Christ, everything's going your way because Christ is in you. And it's for His glory and for your good. And one day when you get to glory, you will see it and there'll be no more pain and suffering. Constant joy. Constant peace. The glory of God. I cannot wait to see the glory of Jesus Christ. The, the, the very glory that when Moses saw the back of God, his face shined so brightly that the people were frightened of him. That's the glory that we get to see. Amen? Better than the glory of the sunrise. Better than the glory of the sunset over the Blue Ridge Mountains. Greater glory than anything we've ever seen. Maybe you're sitting here today. And you're saying, what's all this believe and trust and baptism and all this sort of business? Maybe you don't understand. Or maybe maybe you're here and you're saying, I, I don't even know if I'll be able to see that one day. I'm not, just not real sure. I want to end with this. The Bible is very clear that when people die, we will have one of two destinations, heaven or hell. There's no in-between. And Christ came to prepare you for heaven. Every single human being born on the face of the earth is sinful to such a degree that they can't even come close to coming to the righteousness of God. All sin is against that infinite holy God. It's no way can we pay the price. So therefore, Christ came and suffered so that we might be redeemed. So you ask, well, how can I be redeemed? How how can I have salvation from that judgment of God? It's very simple. The Bible says believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Well, yeah, pastor, I believe that Jesus was an actual person. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that you believe that the only way you're going to get to heaven is by trusting what Christ did and not what you can do. And when you understand the infinite gap between your wickedness and His holiness, the Bible says that you, you live a life of repentance. And repentance and faith are, are almost one and the same. A, re, a person who b- believes on Christ changes his direction from following his own desires in his own way to following what God wants him and sin grieves him and that sort of thing. That's what repentance is. And repentance is a daily thing. A daily thing. That is how you avoid God's judgment. And you can do that right now, sitting in your seat. You can do that by talking to somebody about this. Maybe you need more talking. But I would encourage everybody here, be reconciled to God. Because if not, the wrath that was poured out on Jesus for the salvation of the ones who come to Him will be poured out on you for all of eternity in hell I do not want to see that. I don't want to see that at all. Trust, believe, repent. Lord, we thank you for the the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Frankly, I'm so glad that it's not my best life now. I'm glad that there is an eternal hope that we have all been called to through Jesus Christ. And I thank you, Lord, that Christ suffered and we can also suffer and then see glory in heaven. 
Oh, Lord, this passage is so wonderful. It's just so exciting to, to, to look at what Jesus did. My desire is for the saints to just be in awe of Jesus Christ. Be in awe of your great salvation. We can't even comprehend it, Lord, but give us minds and hearts to want to comprehend it to the best of our abilities. And Lord, then we're here to proclaim that message. I ask that we will love our neighbors, our co-workers, our families so much that we'll be emboldened to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ so they can see the gospel in our lives and hear the gospel and be gloriously saved. I also want to ask that you will encourage the ones suffering right now for doing right, maybe suffering in difficult circumstances otherwise. Lord, you haven't abandoned them. Somehow this is for your good. They may not understand it now, but one day they will. But Lord, help them, help the head knowledge of what we learned today to become heart knowledge so that they can have joy and praise you even in the storm. In Christ's name, amen.